Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you today. This will be plenty of baseball talk as we have hit the All-Star break, and we'll catch you up on what's been happening in the MLB in today's seventh-inning stretch. The World Cup also wrapped up over the weekend, and I'll be joined today by Joe D'Aloisio, the creator of the Extra Time blog, to recap the finals and look ahead to 2022. Be sure to stay tuned all the way to the end of the show for today's two-minute drill, where I'll explain how Wimbledon showed us over the weekend that you can have too much of a good thing. We'll get it all rolling with our opening tip, where I try and figure out why the Yankees were going after Manny Machado, and what's up with the Jacob DeGrom news right after this. Y'all ready for this? And we're back with today's opening tip. The big story of the week has been the pending Manny Machado trade. As of as of last night, it appears that the Los Angeles Dodgers are the front runners to get him. There is a deal that has apparently been agreed to in principle. The Dodgers are getting Machado, cash, and international bonus pool money for Yusniel Diaz, their number four prospect, Dustin May, their 10th ranked prospect, and Errol Robinson, their 18th ranked prospect. Now, this deal isn't finalized yet. There are some medical issues that the Dodgers and Royals are working through, but assuming it gets done, this is a pretty solid return for a rental player. Now, the Dodgers beat out several teams to get Machado. They beat out the Brewers, they beat out the Phillies, and they beat the Yankees out. Now, the first two I can understand because they need some pop on, those, on the Brewers and the Phillies to try and get to the playoffs. The question is, why in the world are the Yankees going after Manny Machado? They have a good third baseman in Miguel Andujar. Andujar is hitting 279 this year with 12 homers, 39 RBIs, and 805 OPS in 84 games. That's a .9 war. He's only 23 years old. He's 23 years old in his rookie year. He has plenty of time to improve and get better and turn into a superstar. And granted, Machado is doing much better offensively. He's hitting 315, 24 homers, 65 RBIs, a 962 OPS, and 2.9 war. Now, I get that Machado is a better defender, but is the better defender and a slightly better offensive stats worth giving up a boatload of prospects to get him now like the Dodgers did? I don't think so. If the Yankees love Manny Machado that much, they could sign at the end of the season for nothing but money and keep those chips. If the Yankees were going to compete with a Dodger offer, one proposal could be Justice Sheffield, which is apparently why the Yankees didn't make the deal because the Orioles were holding out for him, Billy McKinney, Clark Schmidt. There's basically three of their top 18 prospects. The problem is, unlike, unlike those other teams in the offense, the Yankees need pitching. Machado's not helping with that. The Yankees scored 493 runs so far this year. That only trails the Red Sox in the American League. And they also lead the league in homers, 161. They do not need more offense. They do not need more right-handed power. The other problem that you can run into is Machado has made it clear publicly he wants to play shortstop. Now, he's probably a better defender at third, but Machado knows that shortstop is his path to a bigger contract at free agency. There are not a lot of elite power-hitting shortstops who can actually feel decently in free agency. Machado came out and said publicly that I do not want to play third anymore. I am a shortstop. I will do it if I have to. That's not a good idea. That's going to just upset the apple cart, upset the chemistry, and this group has had a lot of chemistry going for them. And you're talking about wasting big-time trade chips to get Manny Machado potentially two and a half months earlier to try and avoid the one-game playoff. That seems to be a complete waste to me. The one-game playoff, while it is very scary and could end your season, it's not the end of the world. The Yankees were in the one-game playoff last year and got out of it. If you're going to use your big-time trade chips, if you're going to use Sheffield or Andujar or McKinney 
or Estevan Florial or Chance Adams. Use them to go get a big pitcher. You could use them to get a guy like Michael Farmer or Jacob DeGrom. Speaking of Mr. DeGrom, DeGrom's agent created quite a firestorm at the All-Star game earlier this week. Let me read you a statement from Brody Van Wagenen. It's first part by Ken Rose Love Athletic. Van Wagenen rep- is part of CAA and represents DeGrom and several other Mets players, actually. This is what he had to say. We have discussed Jacob's future with the Mets at length. Jacob has expressed interest in a long-term partnership that would keep him in a Mets uniform for years to come. If the Mets don't share the same interest, we believe their best course of action is to seriously consider trade opportunities now. The inertia of the current situation could complicate DeGrom's relationship with the club and creates an atmosphere of indecision. Now, that's a big bomb coming from CAA, who has had a good relationship with the Mets. Joanna Cespedes has represented by CAA, and they signed a four-year $110 million deal with the Mets. Tim Tebow is also represented by CAA, and he's also a member of the Mets organization. The fact that CAA is now calling calling the Mets out for indecision and and avoiding inertia is a sign that DeGrom is fed up with what's going on around him. Now, keep in mind, DeGrom never in here says that he wants to be traded. DeGrom makes it clear he wants to stay with the Mets, but he wants to get paid. And he wants to get paid now. He does not want to wait until the end of the season. He does not want to wait until next winter. He wants to get signed to a big contract now, and there's no reason he shouldn't. He's been the best pitcher in baseball this year. The guy is 5-4 and four with a 168 ERA, leading the league by, almost, by more than half a run in earned run average. If the All-Star game is anywhere but Washington, he's the starter. Dave Roberts said that basically the other day. Now, the Mets blew this because they should have signed to a long-term deal last winter. It was only 15-10 with a 3.53 ERA and had 200 innings for the first time. Back then, you could have gotten him for like probably five years, $90 million contract, bought out three arbitration years, two free agency years, and been good to go. Now the Grom has no reason to sit there and give them a discount like that and can say, oh, I'm worth 5-150. And then the Mets have another decision to make. It's not going to happen now. It's not going to happen at all this year because they don't have a GM. They're not going to decide to sign or trade the Grom by July 31st because it's not fair whoever the new GM is going to be. That new GM will have the ability to make the decision on Jake and Syndergaard and figure out what's the best move for the franchise long term. I'm sure they're going to talk about trying to sign them in the winter. If it doesn't work, I would expect more serious thought about trading the ground at that point. That's a whole other mess, and the timetable for the showdown got bumped up significantly by Van Wagenen's statements. It'll be worth watching as the uh, Mets year continues to play out. Coming up next, the World Cup wrapped up this weekend with France hoisting the cup for a second time. We're going to recap it all and look ahead to 2022 with Joe D'Alessio, the creator of the Extra Time blog, next pudo quedar tranquilo y nació al día siguiente. Mira el centro, cae el gol. 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 All right, and we're back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. We are talking World Cup soccer. In case you missed it over the weekend, France has won the World Cup. They defeat Croatia 4 to 2 in the final win their second title, and I want to talk about it today with a guy who has his own soccer blog, the Extra Time blog. His name is Joe D'Aloisio. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing good. Before we get rolling, can you give everybody a back, bit of your background with the sport of soccer? So pretty much growing up, soccer was everything to me. Um, both of my parents, born and raised in Italy, immigrants to the United States. Uh, my dad, huge soccer guy. So right from birth, um, I pretty much was around the game, surrounded by the game, playing the game. 
Um, I played my entire life, started at about five years old up until uh, my high school years, had the opportunity to play in college. I had uh, opportunities throughout uh, Division One, Two, and Three. Opted not to play, focus on my academics. But you know, it's been it's been part of me my entire life, and and, and a very important part of my life um, since I was born. That's pretty cool, man. I love to hear stuff like that. So, what were your initial thoughts about the game? France wins four two, highest scoring World Cup final since nineteen sixty six, when England defeated West Germany by the same score. What do you think? What was your impressions of the game? Yeah, I. You know what? Overall, I thought the game was eh. You know what I'm saying? So, I, I it it started off great. It started off really well. You know, even though Croatia was down two one at the half, the energy, the fight that Croatia showed, they dominated. They dominated that first half in possession. They were they were losing though because they were unlucky. Um, you had the uh, own goal. Penalty kick. And then the penalty kick, the unfortunate uh, handball, which uh, the VAR, the VAR uh, technology, overturned that and uh, awarded France a penalty kick. And, you know, in that first half, just watching it, you thought maybe that this team had a good shot, that maybe they could. But there was always, even entering the game, you thought, you know, Croatia's legs may be, you know, they've played so much between all the overtime games and the extra time that they would run out of gas. And in the second half, it was just a tale of two halves, and France just completely outran, outran them, demolished them. And the minute that France got back on the scoreboard, they you could tell that Croatia was pretty much defeated. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big soccer guy by any means, but I'm watching this game, and, like, it reminds me a lot of, like, France is, like, the bully in Croatia, like the little kid trying to fight the bully. So, like, France kind of has their hands sticking out like this, but they holding the guy far away and Croatia swinging at him and getting nothing accomplished at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, w- it and it was a tough task because, again, like I mentioned, going into the game, Croatia had a lot of a lot of time on those legs. I mean, they they really grinded to get to that to get to the finals. And you know, for, you go you look at France and they cruised through the group stage. They really weren't challenged, and then they turned it up a notch that you didn't see early on in the tournament. And they they deserved it. They they really put a number on Croatia. And, you know, give it up to a, a country like Croatia. I feel like a lot of people who didn't have a rooting interest were rooting for Croatia just because you always love the underdog story. You know, here's a country with 4 million or so people that are in the World Cup final. Like, that's pretty phenomenal. So the fact that they even got there, um, not necessarily a huge surprise if you follow the sport because you know the talent that that, that team has. But, you know, a great accomplishment. Yeah, I think the big star coming out of this tournament is obviously Kylian Mbappe. I mean, he's, he was just dominating for France the entire tournament. The first uh, teenage, second teenager ever score a goal in the World Cup final. And you're getting compared to Pelé. Obviously, you're doing something, right? So where do you think he's going to go from here in terms of both club level and international level? Yeah, he's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, 19 <laughs> years old, and this is who we're talking to. I mean, remember, this is a tournament that had Cristiano Ronaldo in it, Messi, Neymar, and here we are talking about a 19-year-old. So that just says how talented he is, that he captivated this this World Cup. So right now he plays for PSG. Um, I think it would be best for PSG to keep him there. I have a feeling that they will lose Neymar possibly. He may make a return back to La Liga, not to join Barcelona, but I think maybe Real Madrid. Um, but if, he, if Neymar stays then I think that opens a door for Mbappe to go to a, a, a team like uh, Real Madrid who just lost Cristiano Ronaldo. They have a ton of open money. You could probably see a, you know three or four stars end up with the uh, Spanish powerhouse. 
Yeah, I was about to ask about that because I know that Ronaldo went to Juventus recently. I figured that would be a perfect landing spot for him because I figure they want the star power and there's no bigger star right now than Mbappe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would be ideal for him. I think that also um, he doesn't need any more exposure. I mean, after the World Cup that he had, uh, even before the World Cup, everybody knew who he was. Um, But to take the next step into his career, that'll probably be the move if I had to guess. Yeah, and the thing about this France team, France is just scary because they are so young. They were the second youngest team in the tournament tied with England. I think only Nigeria was younger. I mean, they have a good shot to repeat. They, we haven't had a repeat champion since Brazil in the 60s. I mean, and that's that's the thing. When you look ahead at the upcoming World Cup, I mean, you look at the teams that made deep runs, right? You look at France, who obviously won it. You look at England, you look at Belgium. All three, th- three of those teams could realistically be in the same position as they were in this World Cup in 2022. And that's crazy because they're they're all young teams and all very talented. So I think they're you know you're gonna see France again. Absolutely, there's no doubt in my mind. Especially you know you give a guy like Mbappe uh, four years. I mean, sky's the limit. I, he he's gonna be even more special if that's possible. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, he's going to be 23 when the World Cup kicks off in four years. It's scary. It's scary to think of. Yeah, and like there's not a lot of old guys in that team, so they're all gonna be really just entering their primes at that point. Uh, most of that team will still be there in the next World Cup, and that's you know that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. Um, you know they they've played with they just won the biggest tournament ever, at, with with such little experience. There's there's no excuses now. Expect the only thing that could hurt them is expectations. That could get to them, but if they could avoid that or the fact that uh, defending World Cup champions have struggled the last few years to uh, uh, make it out of the group stage. I yeah. mean that's that's been a uh, an ongoing issue in, uh, the uh, I believe, four of the last five World Cups. Yeah, I know Germany and Spain both didn't make out the last two that they were in. And Italy as well. Yeah, yeah Italy, forgot about Italy too. That's a good point. So, I mean, that, that, that could hinder, that could be on them. But, man, they're talented and they're going to be there. Okay, let's take away it. Let's take the top four out, the top four of this year's team. Who's a team that you think can watch, can make a deep run in 22? No, uh, I mean... I'm not really reinventing the wheel when I say this, but Germany. I mean, I think they, how do I say? I don't think they are so talented that because they didn't get past the group stage, you shouldn't count them out for next year. I mean, them, Brazil, those two teams, they're always going to be relevant no matter how they performed in the previous World Cup. And I still think that, in the future World Cup, those are two powerhouses that'll always be there and will have will possibly make a deep run. I got an outside the box one for you. Let me know what you think about this one. Nigeria. Why? I like the way they play in this World Cup. They're they're the youngest team, they're even younger than France was. They had they nearly got to the group stage this time. I think they lost on what fair play points or something like that. I could see them just in four years maybe breaking through, getting through like the quarterfinals, something like that. The, the difficult thing, I mean, again, and you saw them qualify this year. Um, there's no guarantee that they qualify again. And you kind of see that a lot with these African teams that they're not as consistent as the European teams and also not a lot of them get, uh, you know, they don't take a big pool of them to to the tournament. So, you know, that, that'll be interesting. That is a dark horse. I think you probably are the only one to really pick Nigeria <laughs> to, to make some type of uh, noise. But, I mean, if they get there, why not? Okay, so we're in the midst of a European dynasty in the World Cup stage. Four straight tournaments a European team has won. You haven't had a winner outside Europe since Brazil in 2002. 
do you think this run's going to continue? And if it does, what can like the rest of the world do to catch up with, with Europe? I don't think it necessarily has to do with catching up with Europe. I just think that these European teams, France, Spain, Germany, have just been overall more talented. I don't. I think you know, clubs in South America, uh, country, excuse me, countries in South America like Brazil, like Uruguay, they're talented. They're going to always be there. They're they're they have the players coming up. I think this was just a good uh, timing. It was good timing for these European um, countries that their influx of young talent just continue. They continue to produce um, young talent, and that's what's really gotten them to to be so dominant. Yeah. So. One team I know that didn't make the World Cup, but everyone here cares about right now, is the United States. So they missed 2018 excuse me, because of a disaster in qualifying. Somehow they couldn't get one, couldn't beat Trinidad and Tobago's B team to get through to the uh, at least the playoff. That was embarrassing, but it's a shame because they wasted a year where they have one of the best best American players I've ever seen, Christian Pulisic. I'm, I'm pronouncing that right. I mean, I've heard that. I've heard Pulisic, Pulisic, Pulisic. I, it. It's varied. I'm not going to confirm, but I go Pulisic. Okay, so what does the U.S. have to do, in your opinion, to put themselves in a better position to qualify for 2022 and build a team to make a deep run over the next two cops with, with him and his prime? Well, first of all, they got to show up. Yep. I think that was the biggest issue that they, you know, that they didn't um, qualify is they didn't show up. Um, another thing is that I don't think anybody took accountability of why they didn't qualify. And I blame I blame Bruce Arena, the manager. Yeah. You know, um and if you ask Bruce now about it, he's still very combative and he goes back and forth and he doesn't really say you know, he doesn't take the blame. He he deflects a lot with it. I thought that the the players of choice that they had during the qualifying stage um played a role. Um, friendlies mean nothing. I right? heard that. Yeah, friendlies yeah. mean nothing. But the recent teams that you've seen the U.S. put out have been extremely young. And you got to give these kids a shot. You got to give them an opportunity. And this is the same USA team that in their last friendly tied France 1 1. Now, again, friendlies mean nothing, but it's still a good result. So I think moving forward, they need to really focus on the youth. They need to f- focus on these young players that have played in these qu- in these friendly matches and develop them. Um, I think it's whoever ends up fully taking over this USA team should encourage these guys to play overseas. I just think the competition overseas is obviously so much better than it is in the in Major League Soccer that it will only further develop these guys. Yeah, I never really understood the whole fascination with, oh, we have to get our American players to play in MLS because, like, the whole thing with Michael Bradley going to Toronto and, like, some of these other guys playing on stateside, like, they're playing as inferior players, not going to get any better. Exactly, you know, and there's no better way to get prepared uh, to play in the t- in the, in the the top tournament than going against top talent on a weekly basis. So I think getting them that exposure, having them play in Europe, and, and you don't have to play for um Manchester United or Barcelona you could as long as you're in the league you're facing good competition and better competition than you would be facing in major league soccer so I completely advocate making these guys um go outside of the USA and and really become better players that way one thing that not a lot of people talk about in terms of the 2022 World Cup is the fact that the calendar is shifting instead of it being in the summer it's going to be in November and December because of the extreme heat in Qatar now granted FIFA doesn't think, oh, 
We're going to host a tournament in the Middle East in summer. That's a great idea. That's a whole other discussion. How do you think the shift in the calendar affects the tournament as a whole? This is going to be interesting. Yeah. And as an as Americans in the United States, even more interesting because at that time of the year, NFL, bingo, NFL, college football, NBA. I mean, you you got so much NHL. You got so much going on. I can tell you right now, if there's a soccer game on Football Sunday, it's gonna get buried. No chance that it does well in the United States. You know, even if the U.S. is playing, I don't think it's gonna do well. No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I thought you know this past World Cup they had a they had a good opportunity because the games are being played in the morning. It's the summer. There's no other options to really watch other you know other things at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. Yep. Now, now I don't know what time these games are gonna be played in 2022. But the timing, is, to me, uh, I think that's going to hurt the overall ratings because of so many more options. And NFL's king, especially in this country. Now, in other countries, you know, it's going to do fine no matter what. But I hear I find it that I find that it may struggle, um, especially if those games land on a Sunday, maybe even a Saturday. And what do you think about some of these European clubs who have already made a fit about the fact that it's going to be interfering with their club seasons? It is what it is. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, it, it is what it is. I think um, it puts more pressure on all of these all of these leagues to determine what they're going to do. Do you just suspend the league for a month? Do you start the league? I don't know what they're going to do yet. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of like what happened with the NHL at the Olympics all those years where they had to stop the season for two weeks, send the pros. Exactly. Do you Do you stop the league or do you figure out a way to start the league early? So that you can afford to stop the league and come back and go right into it. So you don't think there's a scenario where they say, "Oh, we you can't use your use our players because this because it's interfering with our club season." Absolutely not. Yeah, I really don't see that happening. Not at the World Cup. Yeah, and I, and again, the Olympics are a big deal. Yeah, but I, I, if that happens, I wouldn't watch the World Cup. Yeah, if you're telling me, you know. Cristiano Ronaldo, let's say, if he even is at that next World Cup, because he may not be. Or Mbappe. Mbappe, perfect example. And he's playing for PSG still, doesn't transfer. And they tell and they they say he can't go, he has to stay in the league. That's that's ridiculous. I, that would lose so many fans. And not only would it lose fans, but you it'd be even harder to attract more fans because we navigate to the stars. We gravitate to the stars. Yeah. Right. So if you're there missing stars, what are you going to showcase? Not much. Exactly. So you, I don't think they could get away with something like that. Now it'll be interesting for Major League Soccer, who has an opposite calendar as the European teams, if they decide to adopt a European calendar, so everybody's kind of under the same branch. That'll also be interesting to see. Okay, last thing is 2026, the World Cup's coming to the U.S. People don't, people don't realize it's expanding to 48 teams at that point. Oh. So we're going to have, we're going to 16 groups of three instead of 12 groups, instead of like doing it as 12 groups of four. Now, one of the things I love about this World Cup was the whole last phase of the group stage where they play the kickoffs at the same time, and then you have all the drama of like, oh, we need a goal in this game, and they need to hold the team shut out to win. That was fun. That's going away with this. I mean, what do you think is going to, impact a tournament with this because i think this is going to lead to a lot of problems i hate it i hate it i don't think they should do it if there's a way that they don't do it they should definitely not do it i think it's going to water down the competition i don't think you know the united states missed the world cup italy missed the world cup 
you have a select few countries that you really missed in this World Cup um, that could have maybe made an impact. Yeah. But I don't think adding X amount of teams, additional teams, is going to make the tournament better. I think it just waters it down and, you know, it gives these lesser countries an opportunity, which is great. But overall, I still think you have the same teams fighting for it at the end. Yeah, I mean, I could see like a lot more games like that Panama-England game where Panama, right, they're there. They're, they're down 5 nothing before you blink. Exactly, and now you'll have teams that are worse than that yeah. in, in in the tournament. So, I, and you know, the World Cup is such a prestigious game. It's such a prestigious tournament. They shouldn't be looking to expand it. You know, they, you know I think they're at the right number. I think expanding it is only going to make it worse. Yeah, the thing I don't like also is the fact that there's groups of three, and now one team is not going to play the last day, and these say these two sides say, oh, like we can need to, we can play a one nothing game, we both advance, and they can just do it and not really get away with it. I, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Again, if they could change it, that'd be the best thing that they could do. Yeah, especially since it's in the United States. I mean, that's a whole nother, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. You want it to be as entertaining as possible. I think you lose a lot of entertainment with expanding the field. Yeah, well, definitely interesting. We know money talks is probably the only reason why that we have this many teams going forward. Is they want to get more countries involved. And why the next World Cup is where it is. But, yeah. that, again, a whole other story. Yeah, we could spend another hour talking about why the World Cup's in college. We're not going to do that. Do you want to stick around and talk a little baseball? Of course. All right. Everybody knows the World Cup is over, but the first half of the baseball season is also just over. The All-Star game was last night. We're talking a little baseball, give you the landscape, what's going on, the seventh inning stretch coming up next. Right, and we're back with Joe D'Aloisio for today's seventh inning stretch. We're going to recap the first half of the baseball season. We are recording on Wednesday. The All-Star game was last night. Now, Joe, were you a big All-Star game guy for the home run derby? I hate everything All-Star game, and it's not just MLB. It's all the Pro Bowl. I hate it. I can't stand it. I don't like it. The fact that the MLB, MLB All-Star game still determines home field advantage. And the, no, it doesn't anymore. They stopped that two All right, ago. thank God, because that was so ridiculous and stupid that a meaningless game determined who would uh, host, who would have home field advantage in the World Series. I'm more of a derby guy. I wish there was a way. Um, they, fixed that, the, they fixed the derby finally, too, with that clock. Yeah, that helped. Yeah. Um, but I'm more of a derby guy. I'm more of a skills competition guy. I would love to see if the MLB could somehow throw in some type of skill competition, you know, who throws the hardest, who runs the fastest. Same thing with the derby, though. I understand the concerns. You don't want a pitcher going out there throwing 110 miles an hour and blowing out his arm. Oh, yeah. But, you know, that's something that I found, like, I would watch more compared to, you know, an all-star game, which was a home run fest, basically. Yeah, I mean, if if there is ever a game that emphasizes modern baseball, it was last night's all-star game. I know you didn't watch it, but in case for everybody who missed it, you had, this is the three true outcomes uh, paradise. You have... I think it's 10 home runs, set of all-star game record, nine walks, 25 strikeouts. That's absurd, though. <laughs> it's like, honestly, 10 home runs in a game is like, you know, no defense. It's like the Pro Bowl, no defense. A quarterback yeah. throwing five touchdowns, you know, in the first quarter. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, like, literally only one run score without a home run was a sacrifice fly. That's unbelievable. But again, it, it it speaks to the the era of baseball that we that we're in, and that yeah. you know everyone loves the home run ball. So 
the launch the launch angle revolution, which is driving me crazy. That's a whole other debate. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, so we're going to break down the what's going on in baseball the first half on our seventh inning stretch. We've got seven topics to go over. We're going to start with the American League playoff race, which is basically over. Four teams are basically on pace with over 100 games with the Yankees, Red Sox, Astros, and the Mariners. And Cleveland is up not basically like 10 games in Central because the whole division is a joke. So first thought, I mean, the only real intrigue you have in the AL is the, is the East race we're going to get to and the fact that Oakland is still kind of floating around giving Seattle a hard time. Yeah, I, I actually think now obviously Seattle has the longest playoff drought. Yes, they do. They have the longest playoff drought. So I'm actually keeping a close eye on that race and seeing as we go deeper into August, into September, how this team plays and if they could continue to play the way they are or if they trip up because of that, you know, that being in the back of their minds. Hey, we haven't been here in so long. We got to do it. We got to do it. And the pressure just builds up and they fall apart. So that's what that's really the only thing that's, you know, really intriguing me out of the AL, of course, other than the AL East, because that race that's, where, that's, that, that's unbelievable. I mean, the, that's where we're going next. Number two, we're going to the Yankee-Red Sox race where you have two teams on pace to win 105 games, and one of them is going to be hosting the wild card game. That's just, like, almost unheard of. Yes, yeah, 60-plus wins, over 60-plus wins for both of these teams. Like, uh, it, it's I can't remember the last time it was, you know, that they were that dominant. Yeah, I mean, like, the Red Sox never lose. They feel like they have an eight-game win streak every day. And now here's the thing that I'm looking for in the second half of the season. The Red Sox haven't hit a wall yet. No, they haven't. At some point, they gotta they gotta hit a wall. I mean, every team does. Yeah, every team does. I mean, can Mookie Betts and JD Martinez really continue to put up the numbers they're batting? They they have. I mean, I'm pretty certain Mookie Betts is like batting like close to 360. It's unbelievable. JT, JD JD Martinez looks like the best free agent signing ever. I mean, at some point. There's got to be a they they got to hit a wall and if they don't jeez ah they're they're gonna run away with it yeah it's, they're it's, gonna run away with it it's it's literally absolutely crazy because I mean even the Yankees they were nine and nine at the start of the season they've been great since and they're still trailing division by three and a half games exactly and, and that just shows how dominant yeah. Boston has been and, and the Yanks now you know we're we're approaching the trade deadline are they gonna make a move are they gonna get a few more arms. Are they going to get at least one arm? What do they do? There's a lot of questions surrounding the New York Yankees. And, and to me, you know, I, I know I'm bouncing all over the place here, but them most likely not getting Machado, I think, is the right move. And hopefully they could focus on bringing in an arm to to make sure that that pitching staff gets a little better. Yeah, they definitely need an arm because the Red Sox have a better pitching staff than they do. But I have some good, I have some stats to sort of exp- – I think I figured out kind of why there's a little bit of separation between these two teams right now. Now, both have been great against the winning teams. Yankees are 36-18 and 18 against teams 500 better. Red Sox are 32-19. and 19. Here's the difference. I'll give credit to Evan Roberts and WFAN who pointed this out the other day. Against the division, the Yankees are 18-13 and 13 against the rest of the division, against Tampa, Baltimore, and uh, Toronto. The Red Sox are 28-8 and eight against those teams. That's why they're ahead in the division because they are just – taking out the trash against these guys. Bingo. And the biggest problem there uh, with that with that record is, you know, 
right before the break, not too not too far before the break. I mean, the Yankees had a four game stretch against the Orioles where they split. I mean, you can't split with the Orioles. I don't care if they still have Manny Machado. They're a terrible baseball team. Like you can't let that happen. Toronto's having a down year. You need to take advantage on Toronto. They're definitely not playing as strong as as they're supposed to be this season. So I mean, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the Red Sox are taking care of the division with ease, whereas the Yankees are struggling and. If that continues in that second half, they'll never catch up. Okay, so let's go on to our third point, which is as opposed to the AL where everything is pretty much decided, the National League is completely wide open. It's like there is not much separation between the top team, which I believe at this point is either the Braves or the Cubs uh, or the team that's like in eighth place. Things like maybe nine game separation between them and like Washington, who's 500. So like it's crazy that you could have like a lot of different combinations of teams making the playoffs. I think it's exciting. Um, I, I think I speak for everybody. I'd prefer a closer... Uh, race, you know, again, you pretty much have everything settled in the American League, but the National League, there's a lot of a lot of things are wide open. I mean, I look at the East, right? Yeah. With with the Phillies up top, the Braves, who 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 expected the Braves to be as good as they are, a half game out, and then a team that struggled, the Washington Nationals, yeah. are five and a half out. Yeah. Part of me thinks that Washington could turn it around. Yeah. When you got a guy as good as Bryce Harper, uh, he's having a down year. But when you have a guy that talented, he could turn that season around for the for the Nationals. So that's definitely a team I would keep my eye out for in that second half of the season. I mean, you look at the Central too. Yeah, Chicago. The Chicago Cubs are a team that had World Series aspirations. They they they're at the break now, finally in first place, surpassing the 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 Brewers, who are only two and a half out. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you want to even go to the West, I mean, that— The Dodgers came out of nowhere. They were dead like a month and a half ago. The mm-hmm. Dodgers were dead. Now they may get Manny Machado, which, of course, lets them run away with that. But then you have Arizona, who's right there. You have Colorado, who's two games out. And you have the Giants. They're three, they're three, out of, three over 500. They're right there. They're four games out. Yeah. I mean, so that's going to go all the way to the end. And you're going to have quite a few good teams not, not be in the playoffs. Okay, so gun to your head right now. Assuming Machado goes to the Dodgers, who is your NL pick to get to the World Series? I think it's the Dodgers. You do? I, th- I really think it's the Dodgers. Yeah. I think Machado on the Dodgers elevates them in, in so many ways. That offense, obviously, the production goes sky high, and it's a little bit less pressure on the pitchers to be pitching a- as great as they have been. You could you could give up three or four runs when you have a guy like Machado in the middle of your lineup who could hit a home run every single at-bat. Yeah, it's like if it was me, I would probably go with the Cubs just because they're playing the best right now, and they they have like a pretty complete team where they grant they've got nothing out of guys like you, Darvish, who they signed over the winter. And like my thing with the Cubs, and I know they're in their they're seven and three in their last ten, so they definitely are you know got hot at the right time heading into the break. But I thought they would be much better, and because they started off slow, I'm a little wary to to see if they could take it all away. I mean, I think if if the Dodgers end up with Manny Machado, it's a home run. Okay, so we're going to go on to our next point, which is one team who we know is not in the NL playoff race. That's our beloved New York Mets. Why are we even wasting our time with this team? Come on. Why <laughs> why do we even have to waste our time with this dysfunctional franchise? I mean, it's unprecedented. This is going to be the year of every member that they started 11-1, and then they're completely out of the playoff race. You know what? And I remember, you know, I had my friends teasing me, other Met fans, 11 and 1. Wow, you guys are 11 and 1. We're 11 and 1. And I said, the season didn't even start yet. Come talk to me 
in July. Well, here we are, 39 and 55 at the break, 13 and a half games out. <laughs> this season has been a total disaster. Yeah. And there's no fixing it. There, there is absolutely no fixing it. Now you got the Grom saying, pay me or trade me. Listen, trade them. Trade them. They're, they don't have pieces in the minor league. You know, you have Peter Alonso. Who knows if we'll see him? You got McNeil there, who's already what twenty six years old. How, yeah. I don't think they have anything in the minor in their system. You need to trade your arm to get to get pieces. You could get four or five solid pieces by keeping Degrom and paying them. I don't think the team gets much better. How is the team going to get much better with a pitcher with the rest of the roster that stinks? They can never score a run for the poor guy. Yeah, well, a lot of it is comes down to spending the money the right way, which they have not done over the over the. When years. have they ever done it? Yeah, I say probably not since Carlos Beltran. <laughs> when have they other? Uh, Jason Bay. I mean, Jason Bay rings. I hear his name and my ears start ringing. Yeah, like Wright's contract blew up on them. You could go down the list, yeah. Mike. You yeah. could, you really could, and and it's it's a shame because, I mean, this team was in the in the World Series. Not not too long ago. Not too long ago. Yeah. I mean, so were so were their opponents, the Kansas City Royals, who huh, they're they're doing worse than the Mets, if that's even possible. Yeah. But it's just a disaster every single time. You know, it's just the Mets figure out another way to screw it up. Yeah, I mean, the Royals is a different scenario because all their guys left, so it's not like they actually are trying to contend like the Mets were. But exactly. Yeah. But the way the Mets started, you're like, wow, this is great. You know, Mickey Callaway, awesome. And now you're like, damn, I Mickey Callaway is not going to last. Yeah. Like, and then there's already reports that he's going to be back. Like, yeah. you just you really can't make it up. It, it, it's it's frustrating to watch. You could obviously you could tell as a fan, uh, I've tuned out. I don't I don't care. I'm gonna be. I'm interested to see what they do with Degrom. Okay, before we move on, I have an interesting prop bet for you regarding the Mets. Okay. Okay. Which cat? Which of these statistics do you think is lower at the end of the season? Jacob Degrom's ERA or Jose Reyes's batting average? Wow, that is phenomenal. Um, in case you're curious, what they are right now? Yeah, let me get those numbers right now. Degrom's batting average is 168. I mean, ERA is 168. Jose's batting average is 181 because he got a little hot the last couple of games. I th- I think uh, Jose's will be lower. Yeah, you're banking on DeGrom having a couple of rough starts and actually being human down, down the stretch. Yeah, and I'm also banking that he gets traded to a contender and, you know, it happens. <laughs> that he's, he's going to struggle a little bit. But, I mean, again, another guy, Jose Reyes. Why the hell is he even playing? Yeah, I mean, he's it's pretty much everybody kind of senses he's here because he's Fred Wilpon's favorite player, but that's a whole other debate. So. Oh, <laughs> enough of, I mean, it, it's really a shame. It's yeah. really a shame what they've done and—, and I feel bad for people like myself, for you, and all the other fans that that continue to deal with their nonsense. Because that's what it is. It's yeah. nonsense. Yeah, they, it, they're inept. They yeah. cannot figure it out. And I think, I think that if you get enough level-headed, intelligent fans in a round table, they'll be able to figure it out. And then here are professionals who can't. Yeah, it's like I said several, many times. I feel like if you gave Mets Twitter the checkbook, they would do better. It, it's. There's no fix in the Mets right now. All right, so let's move on from them. Let's go on to the, what do you think is the biggest surprise the first half? It's point number five. The biggest surprise, I'm going to stay in the NL, has to be the Atlanta Braves. I mean, the top uh, OPS in slugging, first, uh, second place in the division now, but I think I didn't expect them to bounce back. As fast as they did. As fast as they did. I thought they would have some growing pains. Would be a team that's you know a pest that's difficult to play with. I didn't expect them to be as good as they were. 
as good as they are. And the fact that they did it over the entire first stretch of the first season, of the first half of the season, makes me believe that they'll do it or, or be very competitive in that second half. Okay, for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the American League. I'm going go back to Oakland. You look at Oakland's roster, you look at it, it's like, how is this team 53-40 and 40 or whatever they are? It's like, you look at these players and you look at, like, you never hear from them because they're out west. They play 10 o'clock Eastern time and then, like, all of a sudden they're, like, right there. They're right there with the Mariners trying to fight for a playoff spot. And it's just incredible because they spend, like, no money on their roster and there they are. And that's why, you know, again, you never know. There's so much baseball left to play, so many games. Once it gets down to the, you know, you know, late August, if it's still a close race, can the Mariners pull away? Can they avoid the, you know, big longest playoff drought conversation? I think that's going to be that they, that may play a toll on them. All right, number six, we're going the other way. We're going with the most disappointing team in the first half. Where are you going with that? I know they were hot at the end, but I thought their overall performance in the first half was very disappointing for a team that has World Series written all over them, and that's the Chicago Cubs. I mean, right before they went on this this nice streak to end the first half, this is a team that got swept by the Cincinnati Reds. A yeah. bad team. To be fair the Reds, they have been playing great since Regalman took over there. They have, but I mean, it's... Again, they had to fight their way to get retake that division. Um... I think things could certainly turn around in the second half of the of the season, but the way that this season started for the Cubs, I would they are my most disappointing team. Okay, for me, this is a very very easy one. It's the Washington Nationals. Every single year, it feels like since like 2014, this is the year the Nationals are going to win the World Series. They have the best team in baseball. They have everything. They are 500. Like, can we stop crying the Washington Nationals before we win? Before they can win a playoff series? I think the thing with the Nationals is, is like I've been accustomed to seeing them not do it. That I'm like, yeah, they're finally being who they are. Yeah, you know, and everybody continues, like you said, to put them on this pedestal. For what they don't, they've never won anything. They've yeah. never done anything. So to me, to see them at 500 ball, I'm like, oh, they're being the Nationals. Yeah. That's what that is to me. Yeah, I mean, I think preseason Sports Illustrated picked them to win the World Series. I'm like, based on what? They made no real big acquisitions over the winter. The NL was still pretty loaded. Like, how do we get to Washington being like getting through every round and winning uh, the World Series? I guess that's that Bryce Harper effect, and yeah. you know, and here there's a star-powered player right there who's struggling. So again, to me, the Nats—they're just being the Nats. Yeah, I mean, like if you if you stop today with the way they're playing, they 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 should have no business being anywhere near the playoffs. No. No, and they won't. They yeah. won't. Yeah, a lot of it, because a lot of people are still saying, oh, you know, we don't believe the Phillies and the Braves are going to keep it up. I mean, we're three and a half months in. They're probably going to keep it up. Well, that's the thing. If it was only a month into the season, you could make that argument. But you see it over that extended period of time, and now you have to start believing that these two teams could do it. But even, I mean, regardless, you look at the West, Yeah. all right? I mean, you have the Diamondbacks, the Rockies, and the Giants, who I think are all three of them are better teams than the Washington Nationals. Yeah. And all and all will will jump them if it comes down to a race. So it'll be interesting to see, but I don't see the Nationals even making the playoffs. All right, let's get our last point, number seven. We'll go back to the Seattle Mariners. They have had the longest playoff drought in American professional sports. They have not made the playoffs since 2001 when they won 116. Fans have lost 116 games and lost the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. They are on pace to get back there this year. It's an incredible story. I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit because in the preseason – buddy of mine and I do over-under bets for baseball. 
I have a I have a really bad one in there. I took the Mets over, which that blew up in my face. Yeah, that doesn't look too good right now. But, but I but I will claim I took Seattle as my last over. Okay, very at, nice. At 81 and a half. I'm going to get that one pretty quickly. What made you pick Seattle for that? What did you like going into the going into the season from Seattle that you thought, yeah, that's a good over? I just looked at that division, number one. I didn't think Oakland was going to be as good as they were. Texas is not good. I figured, you know, somebody in that division is going to take advantage of being like the mediocre of the American League. I figured that would be Seattle because they have a decent pitching staff. They had like the time like big stars like Robinson Cano and Nelson Cruz in the line. I figured they were and they started off pretty well last year before they faded down the stretch. Figured this would be the year they finally get over the hump and so far so good. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I know I mentioned it a few times that this may be you know something that's you know on their back. I'm rooting for the Mariners. I, you know, it, it's a, again a good it's a good story. It's been 16 years. I think what that was the first year that was Ichiro's rookie year yep. that they made the playoffs and they haven't made them since. So it'd be good for a team like that to um to finally break that streak and get over the hump and it would overall be a great story again now um the fact that the athletics are breathing down their back it's gonna be scary for them down the stretch it could be interesting it's yeah. not they're not gonna you know they're not gonna run away with it and you know Houston obviously isn't gonna make it easy yeah. so it, it'll definitely be uh, an interesting race to keep an eye out for all right there we have it that's our seventh inning stretch for today Joe, before we go, can you let everybody know what you're up to, how to follow you on social media, all that jazz? You had to ask that, huh? Yeah, I had to ask that. All right, so the social media a little complicated because, of course, my you know my last name is a little complicated. <laughs> so just bear with me. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, you could follow me on Twitter at Joe, J-O-E, yeah. two underscores. Two underscores. Two underscores, D-A-L-O-I-S-I-O. So Joe, two underscores, D-A-L-O-I-S-I-O. I S I O. Thank you for the spelling lesson. That was gonna be very hard for some of our from our listeners to find you on there. I, I tried. Yeah. I, that's why you know when I used to I used to have a shorter handle. I, I no longer have that handle. I wish I could go back to it. It was so much easier. But um, yeah, that's what I have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I joined Twitter late in the game, so I couldn't even get like any Mike Phillips related hashtags. I had to go with M Phillips three three one is my handle. Yeah, but at least it's pretty simple, you know. The three three one, that's fine, whatever. Yeah. And then you know, M Phillips, nice yeah. and easy. I yeah. mean, mine, forget it. Two underscores, you know, you yeah. forget an I, you forget an O. It's a disaster. But if you want, please follow me on Twitter. All right, thank you. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Anytime, Mike. All right, that was Joe D'Aloisio of the Extra Time Blog talking some World Cup, talking some baseball. Now, stay tuned to the end of our show for the two-minute drill, where I'm going to tell you why Wimbledon showed how you can have too much of a good thing. Stay tuned for that right after this. And we're back with today's two-minute drill. Now, I know I talk about Wimbledon a lot the last two podcasts, but if you missed out on the end of the tournament last weekend, especially the men's side, you missed out on some great theater. Kevin Anderson had a hell of a run to get to the finals. He upset Roger Federer, gets by him in a four-hour match. Then the next day, the next I mean on Friday, excuse me, he takes on John Isner in what becomes an epic marathon, all-time classic match, and 26-24 in the fifth set. The two guys played for six hours and 36 minutes of tennis. Think about that. Six hours and 26 minutes for a tennis match. Now, it was gripping theater. Neither guy wanted to give in. And it was incredible to watch. But 
this match showed that you can have too much of a good thing, and Wimbledon needs to consider seriously adopting a fifth set tiebreaker going forward. The problem in tennis is that the first four sets, if you are tied six games apiece, you go a tiebreak, and the tiebreak wraps it up pretty quickly. Wimbledon, the French Open, and the Australian Open do not believe in the fifth tiebreak being for the fifth set because they want players to earn it, to have to break their opponent, serve to win the match. Now, that is one, that's a more traditional way to do it, but it's also a stupid way to do it at this point. The U.S. Open has adapted a fifth set tiebreak. It's not like all the majors are united on this. Poor Kevin Anderson played nearly 10 hours of tennis just to get to the finals, and he was shot on Sunday when he played Novak Djokovic. He, you could see just watching it, he had nothing left, and it ruined the quality of the final. The other thing to consider here is that never-ending fifth sets are horrible for the fan experience. Imagine you had a ticket to that mat, to that uh, session at tennis, and you're there for you're there thinking, okay, I'm going to see both men's semifinals today. The Anderson Isner match, while great, goes on for six and a half hours. Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, the match you're probably there to see, does not get on the court until 8 p.m. local time. They can only play for three hours because of the curfew. And then you're out of luck. You can't see the end of the match because you play the next, finish the next day. That's not right. And on top of all that, it's tough to ask anybody to sit in place for six hours and 36 minutes for one tennis match. Let me give you a time comparison of what, what you could have done with your time instead of watching the Anderson-Isner match. You could have watched the entire original Star Wars trilogy back to back to back for six hours and 19 minutes. And still had 17 minutes to spare to go cook yourself a burger. When you can watch three movies in a row before a tennis match concludes, that's a problem. Even Kevin Anderson admitted the other day that after the, after he defeated Isner that he didn't feel great about it and he wants Wimbledon and the other majors to adapt the fifth set tiebreak. Now, tennis is very stubborn, very traditional. It means they're very unlikely to do this right away. So I'm going to offer them a middle ground. If you are tied 6-6 at the end of the fifth set, you simply play six extra games. Now, if there's... At the end of six extra games, you are tied 9-9. At that point, you go the tiebreak. Now, a lot of great matches get resolved within six extra games. The Nadal-Jokovic match, which came after Anderson and was played over two days, they played to 10-8 in the fifth set. Even a match I go back to over and over again is the greatest match of all time, the Nadal-Federer-Wimbledon final in 2008. That ended 9-7 in the fifth set. If those two matches can end at nine nine within the nine nine area, there is no reason why that everybody else has to play these ridiculous 26, 24, 13, 11, 16, 14 matches. Wimbledon needs to adapt and join the 21st century. That's all there is to it. And that'll do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest Joe Dalizio for stopping by to talk about the World Cup and recap the first half of the baseball season. If you want to find more good stuff like this podcast, feel free to check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-331. And I gave you a choice of hashtags today. Tweet with the hashtag PayJake if you want the match to keep Jacob DeGrom. Or the hashtag TradeJake if you think the match should trade him. Be sure to stay locked in because next week we're going to have some football talk with training camps opening up around the league, including a look at both the Giants and Jets. Until then, I hope you had a better week than Orioles fans.